My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 155 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. Often that's a product, maybe an app, maybe some new gadget or gizmo that helps people in the kitchen. But today, we have a very interesting conversation with Rachel Conrad, who has a very interesting background in the food tech space to talk about what is happening right now in the food tech space. And we're coming out of an unusual time into another unusual time. And in producing this show, I get a lot of pitches and emails and calls from publicists and companies and founders around the world who want to talk about their products. And the interesting thing is that in spite of what's happened over the past 18 months in the world with the COVID pandemic and sort of a, a global reckoning, people are really uh, voraciously looking to make change, make investment, and make a difference. So we're start talking with Rachel Conrad today, who is currently an independent board member, investor, advisor for a number of different tech companies and food tech companies. Uh, she comes from a very interesting background of having worked with some of the top tech companies, the top innovation companies. She has spent time at Tesla, Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, and most recently, Impossible Foods. Rachel, thank you for calling in from the West Coast, the hub of everything that is tech in the United States. Thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be here. I would also add that the West Coast is actually really important for food trends, too. Um, you know, it, it is certainly the, the the tech hub, no question. But when you think about food, uh, pretty much all of the, the food trends that have rippled across the United States and the world have actually started out here in California. I mean, I'm talking... Um, you know, farmed fork, uh, and I'm talking seasonal eating, slow food movement in the United States. Anyway, really interesting changes like the the shift from uh, ketchup to salsa as America's number one condiment. So I think it's really appropriate um, for for you to to be talking to me out here on the West Coast because there is a convergence around technology and food like we've we've never seen, and it makes a lot of sense that a lot of it is starting from out here on the West Coast. Oh, you know, I, I could maybe do a second show where I would bring on somebody to talk about how the East Coast is actually the driving force of the culinary trends, and we could have an East Coast-West Coast battle. Um, certainly, I mean, to point, certainly West Coast has had a tremendous influence both um, on the restaurant side, the ingredient side, and as the port of entry, certainly, for so many things coming from the East. I do think of New York City specifically um, over the years as being the principal driver when it comes to um, restaurant trends and chef trends and consumer trends, because we have that, in, that, that influx from 
Europe, which was certainly the biggest first indicator. So I think it's an interesting, I mean, you make an interesting comment. I never think about California or the West Coast as being um, uh, the driver in terms of restaurant and chef culture in a dominant way. Certainly there have been moments in time. I mean, Alice Waters probably is is one of the biggest ones that you would point to. Uh, but I do think about New York more driving restaurant, chef, and and top-end consumer trends. But maybe that's shifting, but maybe it'll shift again. Who knows? No, I think you're actually, you're, you're right. When it comes to high-end restaurant trends, no question, New York is the epicenter, at least in the United States, you know, but we are seeing such a shift when it comes to, um, you know, Singapore, Dubai, Hong Kong. These are really hungry and ascendant places for, for food trends. And they have become really, you know, meccas in their own right for, for food trends. But when it comes to sort of what we as Americans eat, right, you know, 90% of all the leafy greens are grown out here in California. There's obvious, you know, um, parallels with what comes from California sort of goes um, eastward. And, uh, and that's, I don't think that's going to change. So when it, when it comes to this new generation of investment, in, in technology and food, in ag tech and food tech. To me, it, it's, it's not surprising whatsoever that, that it's coming here, you know, out of, out of this, this region, as opposed to, um, you know, New York, Chicago, you know, Dallas, these are also food hubs in America. But, but I think a lot of the tech um, boom that we're seeing out here, it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense that it would be based out here, largely in the Bay Area, but also to some extent in in LA and elsewhere. Like I said, that you're you're right about the high end restaurant trends, <laughs> no question. Uh, New York is is the the, the big yeah, boom. It's 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 the center of the world for that type of thing. Um, but let's let's segment out some of the different things because I think the East Coast West Coast uh, food coast dominance uh, question. Uh, brings brings out sort of some different categories of, of what we're talking about, because you and I just had a quick discussion of what categories are we talking about when we talk about leading food innovation, when we talk about leading what we eat as a, as a country and a world. Just to sort of expedite the conversation that we're going to have, when we talk about the food tech space, I think we're talking about innovations in what is being produced in terms of the the final consumer product, the final thing that people are eating, what it is, how it's produced, and what the impact is. And I think perhaps notably, part of the reason why your point of view would be that the West Coast is dominating the space is because many of the people, yourself included, who are driving solutions to the environment, to, you know, health for people, to, you know, equity for people. They're not food people. They're not people coming from a cooking, making food tradition. East Coast, we have, when we talk about, you know, people making food in the restaurant world and things like that, we're talking about people from the food industry who are making things themselves. Their connection to their business is making something with their hands and sharing it with people. So many of the people we talk to on Tech Bytes are people who are coming from a tech background, a business background, a law background. You yourself have a journalism background and come across 
the the numerous issues that we have right now in the world and want to figure out a way to solve it and attack it from a innovation point of view, a tech point of view, and a business point of view, which is a very different plan of attack from, I make amazing pizza. How can I feed more people my amazing pizza? So I think more of the uh, tech problem-solving people hub on the West Coast, um, and maybe that's where it comes from. So when you talk about how the West Coast is leading and you know creating these different trends, what type of food technology specifically are you talking about, and what types of people and companies is this coming from? I think that that's a great point. I do think there tends to be in the tech industry a you know find a problem, find a solution type of mentality, and that is definitely happening out here. And to be so- a disruptor, it's almost I had a series of founders who came on the show, and they were all very young. Um, in their 20s, and many of them had just come out of, you know, law school or B school and wanted to start a company simply to disrupt. And it was almost as if starting a company to disrupt an industry and solve a food problem was like the final grad school (laughs) project or the final business school project. Once you got your degree and you went out into the world, the first thing you had to do was to create a company for disruption, have an (laughs) exit. And then five years later, you could start whatever it was you were going to do in life. That's great. That's hilarious (laughs) that you see it that way. I I actually see it a little bit differently. I'm not quibbling with with that interpretation. It's, It's actually hilarious and and kind of spot on. But I will also say, you know, there's been an acknowledgement over the past five years in particular that the food industry is, you know, really, really coming to bear in our existential crises of both um, accelerated global warming and biodiversity collapse. You know, our animal agriculture intensive, meat intensive Western diet, which of course, as everyone knows, is being exported very quickly worldwide, um, is really not sustainable. You know, right now, about 45% of the Earth's arable land is taken up by animal agriculture, both pasture land and the crops that are largely meant for cows and pigs and and sheep and others. And that's not sustainable. That's land that cannot be used anymore for native ecosystems, for biodiversity, for, for native flora and fauna. Frankly, it's also land that can't be fully maximized even for photosynthesis, right? Because we're literally burning down the Amazon in order to replace it with either soya or crops or pasture land for for cows. Um, So that is some of the richest land in the world, the lungs of the earth, which we're burning down just for cows. It's not sustainable. And I think that there's a growing recognition both in academia, in business schools, um, United Nations, World Economic Forum, you know, you name it, that this is a problem that we must all solve. And, and so I think that's why you're seeing the disruption. I don't think that it's disruption for disruption's sake. I think that would be just, you know, destructive and kind of pointless. I think it is, we need to disrupt this industry because if we don't, we actually are just going to continue to torch the planet and we're not going to have a high quality of life. We're going to continue to see hundreds of thousands of species be extinguished just for the sake of of our ability to eat cows, which I don't think anyone wants. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of the entrepreneurship focused really for the first time around this space. And it's not just 
hey, let me make a better pizza. Hey, let me feed my pizza to more people. It's how can I get people all of the pizzas and steaks and milk and fish that they want, but let's do it in a way that actually restores the natural world, that enables us to live in a sustainable place. That's really what you're seeing. And that's very different. This is the first time we're seeing it to such an extent. It has really become a major juggernaut for business development, for venture capital, for entrepreneurship, for innovation. Certainly we see, we're seeing a, a number of plant-based fill-in-the-blank products coming onto the market at just lightning speed. Um, every day I get something in my inbox uh, announcing a new plant-based, you know, ice cream, chicken, burger, um, anything, uh, you know, butter, cooking ingredients, ice creams, all those types of things, um, certainly coming in at a record pace, um, coming onto the shelves, they're everywhere. You know, you walk around New York and your fast casual and fast food restaurants have signs out saying, you know, you can have a, a vegan, vegetarian, you know, burger, breakfast, sandwich, sausage, all those types of things. So that's definitely, you know, something that is is becoming more and more prevalent and certainly the, you know, industrial meat business has been shown for, and we talked about this actually on our call last week, you know, over a century of how terrible it is both for people, the animals and the planet. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Fast Food Nation, which is, you know, decades old. And, and Rachel pointed out, yeah, well, Upton Sinclair in the jungle. And it's like, oh, yes, that was the early 1900s. <laughs> Same. <laughs> We've been talking but, about this in yeah. 1906 or so. Yes. Yeah. But my question, one of my questions, though, is, I, I mean, I, I guess I have a two two part question. One is, is the industrial agriculture vegetable fruit business any better? I mean, if we want to keep it in a, in a literary form and talk about things, Grapes of Wrath, Monsanto, you know, big chemicals, uh, companies owning genetics for plants. Um, you know, if something is plant, does that inherently make it better and more virtuous? Is it all industrial farming that has, you know, inequitable practices with their labor that has destructive practices with the land and the product is vegetable. If it's a vegetable, does that inherently make it good regardless of where it comes from? Because there's also the idea of I can walk into my supermarket in New York City and I'm looking at apples from New Zealand and I'm looking at produce from Mexico and I'm other parts of, you know, Central and South America. I'm looking at things that have been flown all the way around the world, and I don't know that they're necessarily better for me, the planet, or the people who are making them. Is is meat and animal products doing the heavy lift for this? Should the idea be expanded to everything that really is industrial? No, not at all. I mean, so I, I really take umbrage with a small but vocal subset of people in the food industry who think we should blast agriculture back to the 1800s and have small scale farming. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Alice Waters earlier. She's she's a phenomenon, right? Incredibly influential person. But this this whole notion 
that that she implies, which is that we should all be growing our our own sustainable leafy greens in our backyard in Berkeley, California. It it really doesn't work for a 10 billion person world, most of us living in megacities, right? Um, it it just doesn't work. I mean, we we have to have an industrial agriculture system. The problem with meat is um, many fold. You know, one of them is just its inherent inefficiencies. Okay. So we are feeding crops, you know, soy, corn, other, other products to, to livestock. And, you know, about 97% of those, those inputs, those crops are just gone to, literally to rumination, to cows just sort of walking around and thinking. And, and we actually only convert a very small percentage of them to calories for us humans. So it's just really, really inefficient. Um, and, and so we actually need to take a much uh, faster path from, you know, amount of land, water and resources used for, say, soy or corn and convert them to calories for us. We can't use cows effectively as these huge methane belching machines that that convert our crops to something palatable, right? We need to use technology and industry in order to do that in a much more efficient way. That really is the key. So, so yeah, I would say on, on some level, you know, any, any use of animals in the food chain represents a gross inefficiency. I mean, look, Jennifer, we, you know, we, I'm not sitting here talking to you by carrier pigeon. Um, you're not emailing me right now in the, in the chat group by Pony Express, right? Like we're using technology. We eliminated mm -hmm. animals from communication. We eliminated them mostly from our industrial society too. It's actually pretty rare these days in the West that we see plows driven by oxes and, and, and horses, right? Um, we, are, we are also very, very quickly moving to a place where we will be eliminating it from the food chain itself. And that is just a, you know, inevitable transition that, that I see happening. We're definitely on the way to having more non-animal choices. We're definitely on the way to having um, many more tech you know, lab produced choices. And I mean, we've been eating, you know, processed foods and packaged foods and things like that for a long time already. So it's not re really that new um, by any means, certainly. And certainly there is a, an appetite to invest in these things, both, I think, on the, um, you know, philosophical side of what people who have the means to do with their means are, are thinking about for the future, but then also the consumer appetite for it seems to simply be growing. I mean, if you looked at this through the lens of, uh, you know, business investment, and I know that's one of the hats that you wear, typically we think about these things in, you know, six months, 12 months, you know, two years, three years, five years, 10 years. Walk us through what, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is, what, what do you think is being, invested in and seeded right now that's going to have the long-term effect is is the ultimate goal that in two like in a generation or two generations um a child's experience with ice cream is a plant-based ice cream and that their experience with you know a burger is an impossible burger is it a hybrid is it you know what what do you what's 
the vision? Because I know you have come from experience in working with people who certainly have vision and certainly you are, um, you know, in a position now where you're supporting visions in businesses and things like that. So what does it look like, do you think? I would say that, um, you know, I, I don't even think it's two or three generations from now. I think that there's a huge shift amongst people 35 and under who are really quickly embracing plant-based. And when I say plant-based, I don't necessarily mean they've gone full vegan. Um, they have eliminated animal products, including leather and dairy and everything else from their diet. I'm just saying that they they are consuming less um, animal-based products than older generations. I mean, this is this is absolutely true. There's been numerous studies on that. Um, so we're already seeing this shift amongst consumers for whatever reason. Maybe for some people, they want to eliminate cholesterol. They're sick of their you know their doctor you know rattling their cage about <laughs> about lowering their cholesterol. They want to do it that way. But then there's other people who do it for, you know, reasons around animal rights. And then there's there's another growing, most quickly growing group of people who are doing it for sustainability reasons. And and for the people who are doing it for sustainability reasons, it's, you know, it's it's like um, it's like driving a car, you know? Yeah. If you, if you can afford it, sure. Get a Tesla, get an electric vehicle. If you can't, you know, get, get a Prius, get something that's more fuel efficient. Um, and if you're going to, because you have to drive a Cadillac Escalade giant gas guzzling SUV, right? You do it, but you know that, man, there's a, there's a high cost of doing this. Driving around my kid's soccer troop actually comes at the cost of the environment. You kind of know that. And I think the exact same thing is happening with animal agriculture. You know, I'm not saying that trying to take away anybody's steak or cow burger, but when you eat that, you should eat that knowing that there is a huge, horrific environmental cost associated with that. It's just reality. And that's already happening. I mean, I see it not only in my kids, but in their friends. And there's, you know, lots of studies on this, right? That that kids these days, quote unquote, are eating less animal agriculture based products. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that you bring up is um, in addition to the consumer demand for these products, the thing that we've seen over the last year and a half or so, including throughout COVID, is that there is a corporate interest in moving to plant-based. Um, you know, two, three years ago, I was at Impossible Foods. We would get a lot of inbound interest from uh, corporations, you know, Burger King and many others talking about like, wow, we really want to be ahead of this consumer trend, you know, and and these decisions were often driven by the chief marketing officer, maybe the CEO and others in the company. But it was really mostly in response to consumer demand, which makes sense. Something happened during COVID that I thought was really, really interesting. And, and a lot of us in the food tech sector felt it very acutely during COVID, which is that what, what happened during COVID? Kroger um, ran out of ground beef and Wendy's, you know, top three burger chain in, in America ran out of, of hamburger patties, right? Um, and it's because COVID had ravaged America's slaughterhouse industry, the slaughterhouses became absolute cesspools for this, you know, dangerous, fatal disease. And the, the slaughterhouses shut down. 
And that really laid bare the true frailty, fragility, um, lack of robustness in the plant-based sector. You know, despite engineering our entire planet so that 45% of Earth's arable land is dedicated to animal agriculture, um, a little virus wiped it out, wiped out our ability to produce animal meat. Um, for for a lot of consumers for a fairly long time. It's the first meat shortages since World War II in America. Um, and, and that actually got people talking about the move toward plant-based in a way that was very different, complementary to, I would say, the consumer demand argument that we had been hearing for years before that. Suddenly it became one of business continuity. Man, if Wendy's can't provide cow-based burgers, um, maybe they could continue to provide plant-based burgers because the plant kingdom and the plant-based food sector wasn't, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't exposed to these same shocks. So it's really changed a lot. The, the dialogue has gone largely from one that was driven by consumers, primarily young consumers, by the way, to one where CEOs, chairmen of the board, um, you know, board members, analysts, industry pundits are now talking about this, not from just a place of demand, but from a place of, of business continuity, of supply chain continuity. That's what's really changed. So again, I see this as an inevitable shift that, that is happening. And it's frankly happening a lot faster than, than, than a lot of us, even in the industry, thought, thought was going to happen. One of the fascinating things about um, the pandemic period, COVID-19, and I don't know where we are in that storyline. It may be a storyline that just continues and goes on as a, as a just fundamental shift in, in the way we live and, and deal with um, things that you know, grow in the world around us. One of the fascinating things about it, and it's something that we've discussed um, over and over on this show since March of 2020, every single human in the world had some sort of reckoning over the past year and a half. The world came to a stop. We didn't have things. There were supply chain issues across the board. We didn't have our usual, our habitual social supports or work or people or modes of living and in that vacuum, you know, people had a lot of time to listen to things, to think about things, and to have their own reckoning. And I mean, many people will have a personal reckoning that's going to realign their value systems um, at some point in their life. But those moments are usually very personal, and they're usual, usually very private, and they're usually solitary and individual. And this we had, you know, billions of people around the world having it at the same time. So I think what you're saying about something like moving to plant-based or moving to food tech being something that previously would have been following a fashionable trend or like a style trend or maybe an interesting trend, but maybe not something that's uh, fundamental, perceived as like a fundamental necessity or fundamental solution um, that needs to happen going forward. I, you know, which is a perfect sort of segue into what I think is is the natural progression to this conversation. When you know people aligned, you know, you know the vertical integration of you know the thought leaders and the decision makers from you know the CEOs and the board members down to the consumer, then become aligned. That's when we really have momentum. 
You know, on the one hand, the pandemic has been a, a time of of really severe um, loss and severe um, need, and so many people um, not having enough of work, food, shelter, and things like that. But on the flip side of that, one of the other things that we realized is we read the headlines about the stock market, which was doing great up against, you know, personal stories about people and communities not doing well. The stock market is very strong. Finances in some respects are very strong. There's actually a significant amount of money in the world right now to be able to be invested both on the institutional side and on the personal side. Are people driving that money into this type of innovation and this type of vision for the future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, from where I sit, um, you know, I'm a few miles from Sand Hill Road, right? The uh, epicenter of the venture capital industry. There is an unprecedented interest in food tech and ag tech like never before. And, you know, why is that? Well, that's because, you know, sure, we had this sort of green tech food revolution in the 60s and 70s that resulted in, you know, massively increased crop productivity. But, since then, I would say virtually all of the quote unquote innovations in food were really around logistics, you know, increasing um, the efficiency of shipping containers and packaging and things like that. I mean, they weren't primarily in the in the food itself. You know, we really haven't moved on from an animal based agriculture system ever. You know, it's been 10,000 years or so where... <laughs> We've been basically uh, roasting animals, and that worked when we were cavemen. That arguably even worked, um, you know, up until around 1900 or so. Um, but you know, now it, it just doesn't scale up. And so, you know, the ultimate problem that a lot of technologists look to solve is how do you scale up something to to make it efficient? And you know, it's a I don't know, three, four, five trillion dollar industry food, right? And and so you really need to make sure that it's scalable and sustainable. And and again, I think a lot of us in Silicon Valley have been looking at the transportation sector for years. They've been looking at the energy sector for years. Um, the problem with those two sectors is frankly, we can't we, we, we can't turn around those sectors quickly enough to have a meaningful positive impact on our planet. You know, we, we don't have, you know, generations to solve accelerated global warming. We've got, you know, 10 years or so, right? And otherwise we're going to see r even more ravaging wildfires and droughts and hurricane seasons and flooding and, and everything else. And the, the problem with the transportation sector, which, you know, I know very well, I love, I'm, I'm from Detroit, born and raised there, and I worked for half of my career in the auto industry. The problem with, with that industry is um, even if starting today, every single person who buys a new car bought a Tesla, which I highly recommend, by the way, but if they can't or won't, um, you know, I, I get it. It's an expensive proposition. But, you know, let's say they did. Let's say somehow um, Elon, you know, snapped his fingers and every person who was buying a new car bought a Tesla. The problem is that we have a phenomenon called the global car park. OK, there's about two billion cars already on the planet. Virtually none of them 
are Teslas. Virtually none of them are electric. They all consume diesel or petrol. Those cars are decreasingly efficient assets that will continue to consume, um, you know, dinosaur juice, petrol, um, for a couple more decades, right? Same thing in the energy sector. You know, I am a huge proponent of sort of next generation fuels, zero emission energy, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm very hopeful around fusion energy, but, you know, that's a 50 year bet. And we just don't have that much time. The amazing thing about the food sector and why there's so much interest in it among environmentalists, entrepreneurs, um, venture capitalists, investors, powers that be, is precisely because if we can send demand signals to um, to you know to to the food sector that that there is an interest in plant based that there is an interest in sustainable food that doesn't torch the planet that has a very low carbon footprint. Well, then we can send signals to farmers, to farming companies, to countries in general, that this is where you should be placing your bets. These are the kind of seeds that you should be planting. And this is the kind of use of your land that we consumers really, really appreciate and want to pay for. And if we can send those signals quickly, well, then you can actually change agriculture in the course, in the sort of time scale of crop cycles, which is a few years. And so it truly is the only industry that has the power to reverse global warming, to halt biodiversity collapse. No other industry can say that in the timescale that we need. And that's why there's such you know, awesome power in, in food tech and food innovation for the first time. I would actually look at it not so much as like, oh, disruption, it's scary. More like, wow, this is actually the only sector that can you know, help us walk back from this brink of absolute catastrophe. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty great stuff. Well, it's an interesting, food is is one of the most um, amazing things, even on a small scale. It's the thing that unites people. It brings people together. It, it can sometimes keep people apart. It's also so intrinsically personal to each individual, but on the one hand, it can become universal. And there are very few things like that. You know, I do not own a car. I live in New York City. I have a, uh, a city bike membership and, you know, walk around and, you know, take the subway, but I eat food. <laughs> you know, I don't drive a car, but I eat food for sure. It's, it's interesting in that this time, we're going to take a quick break and come back. But when we come back, I, I would love to hear your thoughts about this time in the pandemic and people's relationship to food. Um, my question that I've asked a number of people on this show is, with all the time that we've spent during the pandemic becoming more and more aware of the world around us and the different things and the functionality and how things work and in some instances don't work, I think the consumer, the public, they are at almost their height of awareness and understanding of all these things in a way they haven't been before because it's become so fundamental to survival. But on the other hand, we're living through a period where many countries, the United States, have never been in a situation where survival and access to things had been so unstable. That's relatively a new phenomenon for people who live in the U.S. And so the question that I'll ask before we go to break is, 
when I'm a consumer sitting, standing in the supermarket and I'm pushing my cart and I've been through a period of shortage and we're in a period of, you know, uh, extreme, you know, health crisis, do I care about the looking for the environmental product that's going to be the best thing for the people on the planet? Or am, I'm, is my primary concern grabbing the thing that's available to me on the shelf to bring home to feed my family? So we're going to answer that question when we come back from a break. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We're kind of like public radio. We keep the lights on out of the generosity of our members, most of whom are listeners just like you. Grants and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you, My Family Recipe, from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today we are getting a bird's eye view of that intersection with Rachel Conrad. She is an independent board member, investor, partner, and advisor to many, many of the top food tech companies today. She's also had a pretty interesting experience working at Tesla, Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, and Impossible Foods. Um, she's based out on the West Coast, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, where all the tech and the money is. Rachel, we're, we're really in an unprecedented sort of upswing and almost harmony of people's ideas and desires matching their business and their products. As we talked about in the first half of the show, you, you made the point that CEOs and company leaders and thought leaders now are actually truly interested in providing better food options and products for the planet and for people. But we've also come out of a period of scarcity with 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 production issues, supply chain issues, and just fear, sheltering in place. The grocery store became a, a, a daunting and, and frightening place for a while. For the consumer today, who is now probably better educated than any consumer's ever been, when people are standing in the grocery store, what do you think is driving them? Do you think it's choosing the best planet people product or is it simply, I need what's available to bring home to feed my family? That is a great question. And I'm obviously, it varies quite a bit depending on your age, your income level, where, uh, where in the world you sort of sit, right? Um, if you're just concerned about 
getting getting through the week and you only have ten dollars to to spend on food, then you're going to be making very different choices, right? Than someone who has the luxury of seeing things um, from from a different cash position, right? But um, I can tell you that over the last five years, we have seen a pretty dramatic shift in the number of people who are buying food based on their concerns about the late stage environmental collapse that we are headed into. And, and let me just give you, um, you know, one anecdote on this. I started at Impossible Foods back in 2016, and you probably know Impossible Foods is founded by a Stanford biochemist named Pat Brown, Pat Brown right? Mm-hmm. We've actually done um, a couple Impossible Food shows. And right. I had Mike Leon uh, this okay. past summer when he left to go to App Harvest. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so back in 2016, when I started, um, the company had just started doing these brand studies. So every quarter or so, we would do a survey about um, why. what is your purchase intent for a plant-based burger? Why would you spend money on it? And we started doing this actually before I joined and certainly before the company launched its um, first product, the Impossible Burger. And back then in 2016, when we asked people that question, they would say very, very clearly, here's what drives me. Number one, it has to taste delicious. The plant-based burger must taste good. I refuse to compromise on taste um, when when I buy that. Number two, it must be nutritious. I refuse to compromise on a, um, you know, product that I, I believe is, is less nutritionally dense or, um, or healthy for me or my family. And then numbers three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, when we asked the meat eaters why they would buy a plant-based burger, they said, you know, oh, it's reasons around animal cruelty, worker rights. Maybe a lot of people talked about um, dietary restrictions, want to lower my cholesterol. A lot of people talked about ethical guidelines, religious restrictions, whether they're kosher or halal, that kind of thing. Um, And then we started taking the same survey, you know, after that, almost every quarter for several years. And one of the things that we saw changing was that more and more and more people were buying um, and interested in in switching to plant-based burgers, um, specifically Impossible Burger at the time, because of environmental concerns. And by 2019, uh, something interesting happened. 2019, as you recall, pre-pandemic, remember that, different, different life for a lot of us. Um, and this is the year that famous, you know, vegan activist Greta Thunberg sailed across the ocean in her solar boat, World Economic Forum, World Wildlife Foundation, Sierra Club, American Medical Association, the Nature Conservancy, NRDC, United Nations, you name it. They all sort of were producing this body of content around how horrific animal agriculture is for the planet. And when we took the same brand survey back in 2019, now this is three years after Impossible Burger had launched, it had really become a, an important zeitgeist. Um, the number one reason why people would eat a plant-based burger and shift to a plant-based burger was still taste. Taste reigns supreme. If you don't have a good tasting burger, forget it. It doesn't matter what the nutritional profile is or anything else. Uh, Meat eaters won't buy it. Number two reason was nutrition. 
Still, people refuse to compromise on what they believe is a nutritious, healthy burger. Um, But again, 2019, something really interesting happened. The number three reason why people decided that they would buy a plant-based burger was for sustainability reasons, because the plant-based burger used dramatically less, more than 90% less um, land, energy, and water than a burger from cows. And, and so that is the shift. So it's just empirically true that maybe not every single human being cares about the sustainability of, of their food, but a rapidly growing number of them do care. And by the way, they are willing to put more money toward that purchase, um, even though quickly the costs are coming down, but they still really believe that they want to align their values with the food they eat. And, and so it is, it is just true that more and more people are buying food that is, you know, shrinking their, their personal carbon footprint. And that's great. It's, it, it truly is the most important thing you can do to, you know, live a sustainable, environmentally conscious life. You know, I mean, I, I'm sitting here, you know me now at this point, Jennifer, I'm sitting here <laughs> driving a Tesla powered by solar panels, right? Like that's, that's who I am. I don't even buy new clothes, right? I buy used clothes. I love vintage, all that kind of stuff. But frankly, even for someone like me, the biggest way to shrink my carbon footprint is frankly not to drive um, an electric car or charge my home by solar panels. It is to delete beef um, and to a lesser extent, all animal agriculture products, but primarily beef from my diet. That is the most profound thing I as an individual um, can do to, to actually you know, live in harmony with the environment. And more and more people realize that. So as a person who then is working in the space of investment and advising and things like that, you are uniquely poised to have a a greater impact beyond your personal home and personal footprint. What types of, um, what companies are you working with now? What types of investments do you see VC groups making? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so um, I just recently joined the board of Next Generation Foods. This is a Singapore-based, very global outlook kind of company. Um, I'm actually the first American to even join the company. Um, it's about... Are you uh, the first uh, woman? No, no, no. Okay, actually, good. No, I'm glad to hear. A lot. That's they a whole a lot other of- episode. You'll have to come back and we'll have to talk about women in tech and are they investing in women also or just typical or that kind of thing. I mean, that's a whole other, too many things to talk about, but please, congratulations. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> First American. So, yeah, exactly. Next Generation Foods is, um, ha- you know, has a product called Tyndall. That's our flagship first first product. We launched it um, at only 11 months old. The company was not even a year old when, when they launched it. And they're, they've already expanded to um, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Macau, Dubai, and they're coming soon to, to the United States. So that's, that's great. Another company where I'm on the board as an independent director is called Iron Ox. This is a, a, an ag tech company. So this is a company that makes the robots, the artificial intelligence. Uh, they do machine learning to make crops more uh, efficient and, and effective at, at, at their job in nourishing people and the planet. And they, this company just raised a $50 million Series C round led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates' 
um, fund to invest heavily in scalable climate solutions. So, you know, there, there is a lot of interest in, in this industry. I've been asked in the past, are we in a bubble? And I would say, absolutely not. We're in a vacuum of investment still on this. And it is precisely because the food tech sector has this awesome power to actually reverse global warming and halt biodiversity collapse. No other industry can say that in the time frame of a decade or less. Um, and so there is a tremendous interest in all of these companies. And I think that it, it bodes really well for the future. It's fundamentally why I remain so optimistic about, about the planet um, it's because we all have the power to 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 change the the course of humanity in our relationship with with the planet. It's a fascinating time. It really is. Um, it's interesting that you say we're not in a bubble. We're in a vacuum. Um, just really quickly before we go, because as always, we're out of time, and and we could probably continue to talk well into uh, you know tomorrow and the next time zone. What what type of money are we talking about? floating around in the world right now being invested um, in food tech in this space? What type of investment dollars? You just mentioned some, a group raised, you know, 50 million, which is great, but not gigantic. And when we say there's a lot of money and significant investment being made, what are we talking about? Okay, that is a great question. And that has shifted quite a bit. Um, I would say that five, four, even three years ago, the large majority of interest in this sector was Sand Hill Road, right? The Vinod Koslas of the world, the, you know, the individual venture capitalists whose firms had become very influential, but they were still taking big risks, right? These were the companies that really loved to invest in the very early stage um, of, of companies. These are companies, these, these are venture capital funds, largely out of California, but then to some extent you see them, you know, maybe in Israel and Singapore and a couple of other places. But, but it was largely the early stage, very, very high risk taking venture capital industry. Thank God they invested and they did a great thing um, by, by doing that. You know, classic, classic story was Pat Brown, um, you know, back in 2010, 2011, he walked into Vinod Kosla's office with his, um, you know, keynote deck about animal agriculture and his thesis on heme. And he walked out of there with a check for, um, you know, a couple of million, several million dollars for impossible foods. That was that was great back then. Now we are in a very different league. And again, you know, post pandemic, um, much more focus on sustainability, much more focus on reversing global warming before we go into utter cataclysms. And the group of people who are investing in this are now um, much, much, they're writing much, much bigger checks. And these are often sovereign wealth funds, um, you know, whether it's, um, Tomasic, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore, or these big sovereign wealth funds elsewhere in the world, um, venture firms and investment bankers coming out of Saudi Arabia, Paris, London, Hong Kong, Beijing, and elsewhere are, are now really investing heavily in this sector. 
Um, you're even seeing, you know, the Canadian um, pensioners programs really investing heavily in, in the sector. And then you've got Bill Gates and, and the like. These are people who are only investing, you know, who are creating entire funds around investing exclusively in climate solutions companies. So it's it's really changed. It's gone from, you know, the sort of classic venture fund that, uh, you know, exists in order to um, capitalize big dreams of, of a small number of entrepreneurs to a large, much larger group of, of investors who do an incredible amount of due diligence, who are really understanding that this is the way we avert, you know, cataclysmic climate change. Well, uh, it's repetitious to say and obvious to say we're in, we're in fascinating times right now, but there's really not many other ways to describe it. It's also difficult to get a sense of what's happening on the ground when you're in the middle of a of an event that's maybe an arc or a, you know something that's rising or trending. It's sometimes hard to see exactly where we are and where we're going to land. I will say that TechBytes has been on the air since January of 2015, so we're six years in. Maybe another six years from now, we'll have a better sense of, of where this all leads to. I want to thank Rachel Conrad for coming on the show, talking today. Just some fascinating experiences and points of view about what is happening in food tech, specifically around trying to solve some of the global issues that probably impact all of our survival. I would love to have you come back on the show later, maybe, you know, as you see different things happening again, because it's hard to really truly get a sense of where we are in the big story when we're right in the middle of, of one of the acts. I would love to. It would be my pleasure. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us from the West Coast. I want to thank all of our sponsors. I want to thank Armin, our engineer. I would like to thank DJ Uptown Nico, who is the mastermind behind our amazing little tech theme song. I want to thank our members and listeners for joining us and supporting us, our underwriters and grants. Without you, we would not be able to keep the lights on and the mics hot. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.